0: Greetings fellow travellers, welcome to another episode of Have Travel, Will Travel, the podcast of the NUI Galway Archaeology Society. Our fearless auditor is speaking to Chris Irwin, an Australian archaeologist working with the National Museum in Papua New Guinea. He has had the treat of doing community projects in one of the most culturally diverse countries in the world, with over 180 languages, and will be talking about the joys and challenges in the work. So crikey! sit back and enjoy the journey all right so hello and welcome everyone i am here with uh chris Irwin, who's calling in all the way from australia um, to talk to us about some some work that he's done with uh in Papua new guinea i believe with uh kind of the connections between western archaeology and oral traditions so um, i'll turn it over to you if you want to just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself
1: Awesome. Thanks, Bridget, and thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, so my name is Chris Irwin, and I work here in Melbourne uh, at Monash University, Monash Indigenous Studies Centre. And, yeah, sort of between 2015 and 2019, I did my um, PhD, and I worked with communities on the south coast of Papua New Guinea. Um, and so, yeah, I suppose that's where the research that I'm going to talk about stems from. Um, yeah, very much kind of um, combination of oral tradition and archeological research, which is kind of where my interest lies, like in how people um, remember the past as well as, um, uh, yeah, how they actually build things through time and build villages and um, that kind of thing and how that can be studied uh, archeologically.
0: All right, awesome. It's gonna be be an interesting talk. Um, I guess just to kind of start off, what was your your work in Papua New Guinea all about? Why did you go there? And what did you kind of have, what was your goal?
1: Yeah, yeah. I suppose with, like with a lot of archeological projects, you're sort of looking at, uh, you know, what are the gaps in knowledge and um, what are the things that we'd, you know, kind of like to know that the human history of those kind of landscapes and peoples and uh, regions of the world. Um, and this part of PNG is called the Gulf of Papua. So it's this big um, sort of curving coastline just to the northeast of Australia's uh, northern tip and just um, just to the northeast of the Torres Strait uh, in Australia. So we knew already that there were these huge stretches of coast in which there'd been very little archaeology done. Um, and so I suppose that's where a lot of it kind of stemmed from was kind of wanting to go and introduce ourselves to um, local villages and establish a bit of a research partnership with them to kind of look into their uh, ancestral landscapes. Um, So yeah, I guess it started kind of with archeological questions, but then for me, um, within my PhD, I became much more interested in, well, we actually have this incredible um, oral traditional record here and people are expressing uh, quite a remarkable relationship between what they they know in the oral traditions and what they're encountering uh, in the ground and on the surface. Um, and so for me, it became I became really wrapped up in that kind of um, aspect, having maybe started from the archaeological questions.
0: Yeah, now that is, that uh, is interesting. One thing that kind of at least stood out to me when I was, you know, reading through your article is, is just the, you know, the place of oral tradition, because we have um, a bit of that here in Ireland, you know, I mean, we didn't get Writing here until Christianity arrived. So before then, it was all everything was done orally. Um, So I guess just what um, what do you mean by oral tradition? What exactly is oral tradition?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So I guess oral tradition. um, In some ways, I like the word tradition. I mean, some people would, you know, argue for a different way of describing it, or you know, storytelling or orality or something. But in a way oral tradition is nice because it it expresses that it is uh, a a way, it's an archive, it's a form of recording history and it has a, uh, you know, within a given culture, it will have um, set ways of doing that, you know. So in Oracolo Bay um, in Papua New Guinea where I did my research, people traditionally remember the past through uh, cycles of song um, that are sung uh, often in accordance with ceremonies. And so there's all these kind of um, memory techniques that people are using to Anchor these oral traditions, and so it's just a, you know, I guess like a like a book or like a Western tradition of you know inscribing uh, the past. It's it's solely a way of doing that orally, um, talking, singing um, to pass on stories. But I suppose the interesting thing with this research was um, perhaps it showed that people had these material ways of anchoring um, things that we think of as being very much oral, purely oral tradition, just one person talking to another about the past, um, and actually they were making reference to things that they found when uh, digging in their um, garden plots um, during agricultural practice and that kind of thing.
0: Okay, yeah, that's interesting. So, um, you know, like I said, usually when people kind of think of oral tradition, um, it's kind of just purely, you know, telling stories down through the generations. Um, how, how do they kind of root it in a more material, material form like that?
1: Yeah, so there's, there's two key things, I suppose, in this area of the world. We've got, um, as I said, um, people in this part of PNG are agriculturalists. They tend to have small um, sort of garden plots that are allocated um, between uh, clan groups or sort of extended family groups within the village. Um, and so they're generally, people are generally gardening, that's what they call this kind mm-hmm. of small-scale agriculture in the Pacific, they're gardening in uh, the hinterland, so They're gardening sort of three kilometres to the north of, of the current coastline. Um, and so that means they're, they're always gardening on uh, old coastlines. So we have these Holocene-prograded, uh, accumulated beach ridges that go back through time. And so they're gardening in places where, their ancestors were living, say, 700 years ago. Um, and they come across two key things there. Um, firstly, they come across a lot of earthenware pottery. Um, and we know that that earthenware pottery, it doesn't originate in the Gulf of Papua. There's no known tradition of pottery making in that region. But we do know uh, through the ethnohistoric records that they were trading with people uh, from the Port Moresby region, 400 kilometres to the southeast. east. And so every year people from the Port Moresby region would sail all the way into the Gulf of Papua and they'd stay there for two months and they'd have big ceremonies and they would bring pots, maybe 20,000 20, uh, earthenware pots with them. And in exchange they would take back with them uh, sago starch, which is like um, flour made by a pulverized pith of a palm tree. Uh, and um, and so the first bit of evidence is those pots, it's the fragments Um, And I suppose that tells a story, you know, when people are encountering these pots, when they're digging in the gardens, or if it's just lying on the surface, it reminds them of those ancestral relationships. And so that trade ended in about 1955, um, at a time when, you know, kind of Australian colonial presence in PNG and the Second World War had kind of caused these major disruptions. And so it's really harking back to that time, and they're able to then Uh, remember those relationships with people that they regard as being like very close kin, even though they they didn't have the same language, um, although they developed trading languages to communicate. Um, And the second thing is a sort of more geomorphological feature. So there are these um, thin lenses of black sand in in the excavations that we were conducting. So all these excavations, we did about, um, we did eight excavations in 2015. Uh, very small samples of these um, ancestral sites and it's all sandy stratigraphy but you come across these thin black sand layers and that's kind of got a a whole nother um, chronology and a whole nother meaning attached to it which is that um, people talk about that as being evidence of cosmology so evidence of the very origin of people's world Um, And so this black sand was laid by the ancestors of the people in Oracolo Bay who, and so they're talking about these stories like they have ancestors, say, 23 generations back who were sailing in a magical canoe and were forming the landscape itself. And so it's this, it's totally an origin story. It's not sort of directly related to recent genealogies, but it's kind of the, the more distant past. So it's fascinating because you've got these two really different kind of chronologies that actually sit parallel um, and are both anchored in what people are finding underneath the ground, which is pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, that is really neat. Um, we'll get back to that in a minute because there's a couple of questions I'm going to ask, but I guess just to kind of give uh, some context to the, the area we're talking about because um, until I, I contacted you, I knew Papua New Guinea was a thing. Couldn't have pointed it out on a map. I knew the general area, but... Yeah. <laughs> no more than that. And I really don't know much about the area itself. So um, obviously, it experienced quite a bit of colonialism. Um, but, you know, so what's kind of, I guess, a, a brief history of, of Papua New Guinea? Like, who are the people yeah. that we're talking about? Who was in power? Who came to co- colonize that, that sort of thing? Just to, just to give us a bit of context.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, good question. I mean, um, you know, plenty of Australians don't know that Papua New Guinea exists. So, <laughs> uh, it's entirely reasonable that you ask that, and quite shameful. Makes a, that deal a we bit don't better. Um, yes, yes. So we're uh, because we're, we're very close neighbours. I mean, Australia and Papua New Guinea are separated really by you know tens of kilometres of sea. In terms wow. of if we're thinking about Torres Strait Islands, is is part of the modern day nation of Australia. Um, then the Torres Strait and Papua New Guinea are this kind of adjoining zone, really, in a sense. So uh, PNG is very close to Australia. Um, It is half of the landmass of New Guinea. Um, So, you know, if you're listening to this, you might want to Google New Guinea and have a look (laughs) at where it is. Um, And so it's this big landmass. And so uh, basically the current archaeological theory is that the Indigenous peoples of mainland New Guinea and Australia, uh, they arrived in this broad zone, which was called Sahul. It was then one sort of land, it's been one landmass on and off uh, during, you know, before and after different ice ages. Um, and so they arrived probably about 65,000 years ago, 66,000 years ago into Papua New Guinea and Australia. And so then obviously things have changed with the sea level through time. Um, but in PNG, um, we have uh, the eastern side is the eastern side of New Guinea is Papua New Guinea, and so that's an independent nation state that was colonised by the British and the Australians in uh, the late getting full by, by my own late eighteen hundreds, colonised in the late eighteen hundreds, okay. and then uh, was part of the of an Australian colony until the uh, mid 1970s, I think, which is oh, when wow. Papua New Guinea got its independence. Yeah, so it's, and that, that colonial history is really not well known by Australians, remarkably. <laughs> uh, we've, Australia's forgotten that they were colonists, despite, despite <laughs> the fact that Australia is a colony on uh, what is and was Indigenous land. And so PNG is a place of incredible linguistic diversity. It's very famous for that. It's got many hundreds of different language groups, people who are still, of course, sovereign Indigenous people of those lands. And um, it's a really incredible place in the Pacific. Um, people today uh, do speak many of those different languages um, across the country, but also there's, uh, there are lingua francas or, you know, sort of languages like Tok Pisin is the modern uh, Modern-day national language, which is a sort of pidgin language, it's got some German, English, and indigenous words in there. Um, so it's a pretty amazing place. Um, relatively small population, but um, yeah. And then the the western side of um, Papua New Guinea is now Indonesia, and so again, that's yeah. that's still a colony in effect. You know, so yeah. there's there's indigenous people of West Papua, um, and so that's. That's Indonesia, modern-day Indonesia. Um, yeah, so that's uh, all, <laughs> what I can think of right now. <laughs> just, just a crash course
0: of thousands yes. of years of history. Yeah, no, but it, it's good just to kind of get some of that context because you know I'm I'm sure it it all yeah. affects kind of what you're finding there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so given Papua New Guinea's colonial history um Mm. how receptive were they to western archaeologists coming in and saying you know we want to we want to study what you have because at least like um like with my experience in the united states uh relationships between like the the native american tribes and archaeologists has been strained at best um Mm. just with good reason um Mm. so kind of what is the the relationship that uh the people you were going to to study and work with, and kind
1: of just archaeology? Yeah, um, good question. I mean, I would say always, always complicated, but I would say very positive relationship. Um, I think it always has to do with the shape and the violence and the different events of colonialism. And so, you know, by some, for some reason, um, colonial activity in Papua New Guinea was... Uh, less intensive. And so whereas Australia has been very much, as you're saying, for, Na- for Native Americans, uh, you know, might have reservations about kind of this, you know, Western archaeologists, well, are they just, is this just a colonial imposition or whatever, you know? So similarly in Australia, there's um, there's some great partnership research going on, but of course there's plenty of, uh, you know, suspicion, rightly so, of uh, kind of uh, archaeologists who have a colonial mentality, for example. And um, but PNG has a, a history where uh, I suppose Papua New Guineans today have quite a um, sort of almost kinship relationship with Australia, where they, they like uh, Australian culture and and vice versa. Uh, it's a complicated colonial history because yeah, it is uh, Australia. Uh, there's a there's a quote from an Australian, one of the Australian governors, who said when dealing with the natives of PNG, we must remember that we went there to serve our own interests, which I think was, you know, pretty much states it, it was a very much extractive and yeah. uh, a kind of colonial enterprise. But the complexity of it means, I guess, because Papua New Guinea is in charge, they are sovereign. So, mm-hmm. you know, if they don't want to work with you, they'll just say, Sorry you're not getting a visa <laughs> <What else say? laughs> hit the road <laughs> you know, Yeah, that's right. so I think always from the outset it starts with just kind of sitting down with um, I have colleagues at the Papua New Guinea National Museum who I work with closely uh, and with the University of Papua New Guinea um, and so it all just starts from those conversations and establishing mutual uh, research projects and then uh, the next phase is to talk with the community and actually say well Um, is this something you're interested in doing and and if the answer is no then no problem you know we don't have to uh, there's no obligation for anyone to engage in archaeology with us but I think I think for locals they see um, the benefits of of having these two interesting lines of evidence that speak to one another Um, and also potentially um, archaeological research can have benefits for locals in terms of being able to negotiate with mineral extraction companies, this kind of thing, you know, there's, just as in the rest of the world, there are kind of sometimes benefits to being able to investigate aspects of cultural heritage um, and to then argue for their protection.
0: Okay, yeah, now that's, uh, that, that quote is particularly uh, interesting. I think that's quite applicable to really any colony and former colony. Um, rarely, if ever, did a colonial power go in to colonize with the, with any real good intentions for the people living there. <laughs> yes. uh, um, but no, that's, you know, so that's a really So kind of going back to some of what you were talking about before. Um, so again, I kind of was reading through your article Um, sometimes it kind of, it almost kind of seems that knowledge gained from archaeology is almost at odds from kind of the knowledge that comes down through the oral tradition, uh, such as dates um, and like kind of dating, so like a a former village site that in the oral tradition is considered to be much older is actually much newer according to the carbon dating. Um, So I guess given those kind of contradictions, how do they either you like the archaeologists or the, the the locals living there how do they reconcile those differences
1: yeah i think locals are used to reconciling different kind of lines of chronology and different ways of knowing places because there's such a multiplicity of that going on within communities you know people are always um you know with Oral traditional societies, it's constantly negotiating the past. And I suppose it's the same with literary societies as well. And so you have, as I've been talking about, you've got these kind of multiple, uh, very different, but often complementary chronologies going on at the one place. And so we were excavating at one particular village site, which uh, we know in the oral traditions, it was composed of multiple different estates. Um, different um, clan estates in the past. And so there's an amazing spatial complexity of this site. And so the chronologies, the genealogical chronology for that site and the archaeological, the kind of, uh, you know, Bayesian statistical analysis of radiocarbon dates, they're actually very similar, remarkably so. Um, But where it differs slightly is the order in which those sites were occupied. I suppose to me, making sense of that, um, what it's said to me is it speaks of the way, ways in which people construct uh, notions of the ancestral past. And so it's often to do with the sites that have been cleared more recently and in which people are engaging more regularly with um, the pottery sherds and the buried black sands are often the ones people think of as being more ancient. And I actually think that's a process that we see right across the world. You know, when sites like, you know, to a lay person, if you're coming across news about archaeology, you'll often come across news about london or rome when they're digging a new subway and that makes you think of that place as ancestral as a place of that's rich with sediment and history and it tends to be places that are more engaged with the subsurface are places that we start to think of as ancestral so i think that's interesting um but in terms of locals i think they're very happy with these chronologies to sit side by side and i don't think the the archaeology has Um, you know in a way it doesn't have the power to threaten the kind of cosmological and and spiritual past you know I had this great conversation with a young guy who was um, I think I put this in the in that little article for sapiens but um, you know he was he was kind of uh, trying to get to the bottom of why I was there you know understanding Mm -hmm. motivations we were just socializing and he was saying well what what do you think you know about the past and I said well really all I can do is look at the human history, you know, through the pottery sherds and the charcoal and the carbon dating, you know, that's my formal training. And he said, yes, you're right. You don't know about the spiritual history and the mythical beings. And and so that's an entire aspect of history that I think is pretty well unthreatened by archaeology. You know, they're not going to, I don't think they'll worry about the carbon dates too much. And so I think it just adds another nice, um, hopefully, for, for locals to incorporate, you know, there will be this creative incorporation, I suppose, of, of new information about places provided by the Western science, but also um, it'll be, you know, very much incorporated within those existing understandings, um, which is pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's fantastic. You know, it's, it's well, it's great to hear that, you know, even if, you know, you come in with these, you know, modern Western fancy techniques that say, oh, no, this site is actually, like, you know, three hundred years younger than what you think, um, it doesn't necessarily threaten their their beliefs or their kind of hell traditions. It yeah. just kind of coexists almost. Um, you know, which is just yeah, I, don't know, I, I find that I find that really nice because that it just means that they yeah. get to um they don't necessarily have to like relinquish their, their heritage really.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you see that I think in uh indigenous Australia too you know you have these sites where archaeologists are obsessing over is the site 65,000 years old is it 50,000 years old and archaeologists around the world are fascinated with the answers to that question because it means something for yeah. this, you know linear western understanding of we like how our people dates move throughout the world. <laughs> we love our dates and and yes indigenous people are saying well that's great you know like yeah yeah I understand the benefits of this research and you know it's helping me get funding from parks to do this and and whatever so they, they have their reasons for being behind the project and going yes this is good but also we believe we were here forever you know so there's this there's a cosmology there that's not necessarily threatened by the archaeology and it doesn't need the archaeology to prove it yeah um, but of course the dates are, are still important too they have currency I suppose yeah so
0: actually kind of um gives me another question that I've kind of thought about before because again like in Ireland you know we talk about oral tradition quite a bit especially when we're looking at the older tales because there's always Mm. the question of um you know how much of what we're reading was a medieval Christian insertion how much is you know original to the oral tradition before it was written down Mm. um and also just kind of some other things when we're talking about you know oral societies um is where am i going with this i had it <laughs> my my thought train is leaving <laughs> no i got it bring it back i i find the sentence eventually um but sometimes uh people can kind of see oral you know or view oral tradition almost a bit um negatively in that mm. you know it's it's like a great big game of telephone through the generations, how accurate can this information be, or especially when we're talking about like the more mystical elements with gods and heroes, people are, you know, people kind of tend to look at it and go, okay, well, that's obviously all made up. How can that actually Mm. help us? You know, why, you know, does that actually have any usable information? Um, So I'm sure you've probably encountered that kind of thinking. Um, Mm. So how does that kind of influence your your work or um you know how have you found that oral tradition really has so much more uh to mm. offer archaeology despite it being just knowledge passed by word yeah. of mouth
1: Yeah that's a great question and of course it's a huge debate I suppose within archaeology and anthropology but I think the what we're seeing around the world is maybe that the need for each kind of oral Uh, understanding or oral tradition to be uh, analysed ethnographically and rigorously and using the archaeology. You know, if if we're thinking about combining oral traditions and archaeology or or the intersection between them, it seems like there's some examples around the world of highly linear, in a sense, oral traditions. So you've got First Nations oral traditions in in Canada that describe um, fairly accurately in terms of using, if you're, if you're just going to transcribe a genealogical chronology and then test it using carbon dates. And I'm not saying that's an interesting (laughs) research question, but it it has revealed that those oral traditions really are quite linear and quite uh, capable of at least recording this kind of information about settlement reconfigurations and the like going back sort of 1,500 years or more, you know, so that's quite remarkable. And so then that has implications because the archaeologists in that area can then go, okay, well, when we're here to test how that how it looks in the archaeological record, or it might help us build models, it might help us think about um, that kind of thing. Uh, and so I guess it depends around the world. Certainly in this part of PNG, I, we see that kind of linearity where there's, there's an incredible correlation, especially within that past 700 years of people, people's knowledge of where they were in the landscape and that correlating very closely with the genealogies. that's to do with the technologies of remembering, I suppose, that they've developed through time. Um, And then, of course, you know, are are you going to test the Aboriginal Dreamtime stories about, like, you know, it being the origins of the world? Or is that just, that's actually too remarkable and too deep in the past a story and too intangible, in a sense, to be, you know, (laughs) to be even touched by archaeological (laughs) inquiry. So I think there's this... Yeah, yeah. As you, as you were basically reflecting on in your question, I guess there is there is this amazing richness of world oral traditions and, and people do have these incredible stories, some of which relate in very specific ways to the archaeological record and could be applicable, you know, hundreds of years into the past and and might be testable in the kinds of questions we ask in archaeology and some of which might not. Um, so I don't know what uh, islands. Kind of situation is. I'm as ignorant of that as <laughs> probably Irish people are of PNG. Well, I don't know, but um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, m- maybe you could tell me a bit more about that.
0: Yeah, no. Um, so it's just, it's one thing that I always found fascinating in my classes where we would be talking about the medieval Irish literature, is mm. kind of trying to weasel out these little nuggets of, of knowledge or, you know, the original. Tradition, uh, you know, kind of having to sift our way through all the the Christian influences, because uh, the monks were great. They wrote down so much stuff that we would have mm. otherwise lost, but they also liked sticking St. Patrick in where he had no business being. Um, but I guess at least for Ireland, um, at least is my understanding, and I'm not in any way an expert in this. This is just my you know going off my classes and what I've learned. Um, but uh, I think we are, the stories here are less about uh, recording a history of sorts. Like when you're talking about the, the, the epic stories, like the Cattle Raid mm-hmm. of Cooley and that um, there's kind of a debate on whether or not that records an instance of like Iron Age Ireland um, or not, but it's more about kind of preserving um, cultural aspects and, um, cultural values, like, uh, this certain, certain motives, mo- motifs, motifs, mm-hmm. um, that are kind of preserved in that rather than, um, like an actual history, although we do have quite a few stories that record, like, how certain places got their name, um, like yeah. at the end of the Cattle of Cooley, um, it's, a uh, for anyone who's not familiar with it, it's, Kind of what it says on the tin. Um, it's a it's a raid by Connacht to go steal a bull from Ulster. Ends up in this great big war. Lots of people die. Lots of blood and violence. It's a fantastic story, um, <laughs> but it ends it ends kind of with the fight between these two big bulls, the bull of Connacht and the bull of Ulster. And I believe it's the bull of Ulster that wins. I can, I always get them mixed up <laughs> it's terrible. But. Um, <laughs> he ends up kind of parading his enemy, his enemy's body's just stuck on his horns and bits of the dead bull fall off. And so, and that's how we get a lot of different names of places. Like Athlone is a city that comes from the Irish Athalua, Balia Athalua. Mm. My pronunciation is atrocious, but it basically means, you know, town of the, town of the loins of the bull. Cause that's where the loins fell off. Um, mm. So, you know, so it's a term. we do have kind of some little bits and pieces of uh, cultural history or at least maybe somewhat imagined history, but it's been very much prevalent through the centuries.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would, yeah, that's fascinating. I would say uh, as a general principle, and I'm not saying that a giant bull had a fight necessarily, but, you know, there, there is an incredible, when we look for these kind of material correlates for, oral traditions where we think, is that possible? It is remarkable how often a correlate turns up, you know, in yeah. terms of, I know, you know, and it is very much debated about where these knowledges come from and how they're constructed, I think. And, and that is an interesting question. Um, but you do have these stories in, in uh, of Aboriginal Australians of sea level rise and of, you know, in, in Melbourne, we have, um, Port Phillip Bay um, Aboriginal stories talk about when that was a river that incised a valley. And so, I suppose, going back to this study from PNG, I suppose the question is is it A, that these Indigenous populations are just experts at reading geomorphology and reading back into the past these changes through time? Or is it that they indeed observe these things, then pass them down using the geomorphology? as a reference point as well, something to anchor those stories to. Either way, I think it says something remarkable about um, oral tradition and the things that it can encode and and pass on. So it's a big question about how that knowledge is precisely negotiated, but it's pretty amazing the evidence yeah. we can see.
0: Yeah, no, I've always found um, oral tradition in societies that are very much, have a very strong oral tradition, absolutely fascinating because, uh, so my main degree is in creative writing, so. Mm. You know it just it appeals to my you know my writerly self
1: that yeah.
0: you know there's these stories that are passed down through the generations, and no matter how fantastical they seem you know like again like gods and heroes and all of that running around um you know there's there's usually like little bits and pieces that can be rooted in you know in our world, like you know mm-hmm. by place names or um like yeah. in Ireland again um Usually, when you hear about a fairy fort, um, you know and it's a it's a hill that nobody you know nobody likes to to mess with because you don't want to anger the fairies, uh, but if you yep. go in and you investigate, it's usually like a ring fort or something um, mm. and so there's that kind of that yeah. that those bits of information that are passed down through the stories, um, and yeah. I just find it absolutely fascinating
1: <laughs> yeah, and as you' were saying, places that if they are sort of ancestral landscapes that are not necessarily known to the population that moves into them. They still make new sense and stories of them, have new kind of understandings of them, which is pretty fascinating in itself too.
0: Yeah, no, and it's, you know, it's it's something that I always enjoy uh, hearing about and learning about is just kind of the, how these, these stories and these oral traditions connect with events that then, or events or places that then we discover uh, through archaeology or something like that and it's just it, it I always find it really cool because it's kind of um it kind of just shows like you know hey these stories have you know importance to them they're not just f- stories that they would tell their kids in the evening just to get them to be quiet mm-hmm. and go to bed um although I'm sure that did help <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah definitely
1: yeah, yeah they have a great saying in uh part of the Gulf of Papua which is that uh, I think it's that stories are like tasty words. So it's kind of a like an eating... <laughs> I love that. For it. Yeah, because it's just so nourishing for people with yeah. telling stories at night kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, well,
0: people love stories. You know, I mean, we have, you know, all the books. We have all sorts of movies and TVs. So people are always trying to consume stories. And... I think the the prevalence of like fantasy stories, um, you know, indicates our our love for for those kinds of tales, no matter how fantastical or how unrealistic they seem. We still we eat them up.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So that's great. So, um, kind of, I guess, on on oral tradition. So, like I like I said before, it's a lot of people can kind of view it as being like a great big game of telephone and or or Chinese whispers as sometimes the game is called um and usually like when you're playing the game information is lost as it's as it's passed around so the message you end up with is entirely different from the beginning Um, so I guess it'd be kind of hard to with because it's purely oral it'd be hard to kind of track and see see that happening but Mm. um like how much do you think that affects? the stories that you encounter like the oral tradition that you have now compared to what you may have had even a couple generations ago and like how do they manage to preserve their knowledge through the generations even hundreds of years down the line
1: yeah yeah well i think you you raise a good point in a way which is that like there is no kind of you know there is no essential oral tradition or real oral tradition that we have in the present that is that is directly describing the past you know i guess in a similar way to we construct notions of the past based on the the small observations we do get from an archaeological record the few samples that we do choose to date and that kind of thing so it's all it's always going to be fragmentary um, and similar to maybe the process of the monk's transcribing those oral traditions. You know, there's plenty of the essence of um, certain historical events and people and things that took, took place that are recorded and passed on faithfully. But then, of course, you do have a whole load of um, the effect of, uh, I guess, remembering and forgetting along the way. So people forget things. Uh, I suppose one thing to mention in, in oral traditional cultures is that because knowledge is negotiated, I guess there's, there's a bit of stuff written about this, it's that it's almost conservative. So people do tend to retain a remarkable amount of information uh, in terms of their memories because when you're... um, I had one guy who I was always um, talking to about oral traditions and he found it very, very hard to speak oral traditions to me because he's used to singing them. And he remembers them according to stanzas and rhythm and pace. And so, you know, for. To say, you know, I mean, if we go back 100 years, um, there would have been many people like him who would have remembered many hundreds of stories. And the stories all all link together. They interweave. Um, And obviously, there's been a bit of literature from Europe discussing that in terms of the Homeric stories and what those might have been like and how people might have remembered them. And I guess in PNG, it is very much this... um, There are set ways and... Uh, forms of knowledge that are taught in very set kind of ways. And that I suppose that does give vivacity and helps to um, make sure that they're not just kind of embellished, you know, little tales that someone tells that kind of thing, um, but that it is very much a tradition. But, of course, they do change. I mean, the stories that we hear at the moment are very much influenced um, by Christianity. They're very much influenced by um, people talk a lot about the tribes um, and, and now often in the stories, there's 12 tribes and you think, well, oh, were there 12? Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure there were, but, but now because they've combined what they see as the very significant Christian story with the very significant ancestral oral traditions. And so there's some elements now where you think hmm, that's, that's interesting. And, and there's actually combinations of maps from the Christian you know, gospels and the like. Yeah, they might be the the connecting to like the stories. 12 apostles
0: yeah. or the 12 tribes yeah, yeah. of Israel
1: yeah absolutely so connecting with these kind of you know judeo-christian stories and um so there are plenty of modifications i think but you know also there are very kind of tangible signs in the landscape too that are tying some of those things together which i think helps people remember them through time yeah it's
0: interesting that you mentioned um you know the man who really couldn't speak the oral tradition because see someone who's used to singing them, because um, mm-hmm. that's that's really how we believe the um, the old Irish tales would have been passed along, was they would have been sung. and I know it's the same thing in Wales as well. We do a little bit of uh, study on the Welsh literature, because we have a professor here who's from Wales and very well versed in that, and there's some interesting correlations between Ireland and Wales, just because... You know, mm-hmm. they're linguistically and possibly genetically related. Um, but, you know, so a lot of these, these old tales would have originally been sung long before they were ever put down to paper. Um, which, it's much easier to remember a song than it is to try to remember, you know, 500 lines of just prose. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, a song, there's all sorts of uh, little memory tricks. Like in, in Irish or a lot of the Celtic languages they like using alliteration and that's mm-hmm. kind of how they, um, how they rhyme. They don't quite rhyme like we would in English. Um, yeah. it's a lot of internal rhymes and such like that. Cause then it makes it a little bit easier to remember cause it's a pattern. Um, mm-hmm. and so, it's, so it's interesting to hear that it's a similar case in, you know, a place halfway around the globe with an entirely different people is, you know, they're singing their stories, um, cause yeah. I guess, you know, if it, if one thing works, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's not going to be only the Irish who discovered it, but other, other people are going to figure out, Hey, you mm. can remember a lot of stuff through Solomon.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's in the more recent era, I think that we're seeing those kind of changing, like what I would want to call sort of technologies of remembering, you know, so you had, um, I mean, in terms of those old kind of um, ceremonies and things that certainly existed prior to colonisation, a lot of those things started to change around the 1930s, 1940s. And so a lot of the ceremonial longhouses, which are these vast uh, wooden structures, sort of cathedral-like buildings that people used to live in, uh, and the ceremonies that went along with those, they pretty much ceased around 1939. And so we have quite a radical change there, I think, in terms of the technologies of remembering and the things that people um, use to kind of anchor the ante- aspects of the ancestral past. And of course, people are uh, engaging with their past now, but in a very different way. And so, um, yeah, this, this guy was initiated in the an Aravo, and so, uh, sorry, longhouse, they call them Aravo in this part of the world. And, um, and so that's his way of remembering the past, is through those songs that he would have been taught at that time by his elders. Um, But then the intermediate generation, um, sort of people who are more middle-aged in uh, Orocolo Bay are using more uh, texts and uh, speaking uh, a little bit less the local language. And then uh, younger, even younger people are often going between the village and the modern city of Port Moresby. They probably normally speak Top Pisan, which is the uh, Pigeon language of Papua New Guinea and so again it's all changing and so it's all disrupting kind of some traditional knowledge structures I suppose and changing the engagement but it was cool in a way that we were able to do this archaeology because I worked a lot with the local youth associations to excavate these sites and it was a way for them they were sort of going well Chris we really want to excavate this site here because um, you know, my elder didn't tell me the story of that place. I don't know the songs, but I know that, that this was a, a the site of an old longhouse. So let's dig there and see what the material signature is. So they have their own kind of new ways of, of engaging. And also, there's stories about younger people recording these uh, ancestral stories on their mobile phones, because the stories are important, you know, yeah. when... When people uh, want to build a house properly or when they want to make a dangerous sea voyage, they will speak these stories because there's a belief that that will keep them safe. And so the young guys who don't have the technology of remembering in the same way, they may not uh, be able to sing the songs, but they might record um, one of their family members speaking or singing it on their mobile phone and then pass that between themselves. So there's this incredible uh, change through the generations.
0: That's fantastic, you know, because that's kind of um, one thing that I that I always find sad with, um, you know, some of these oral traditions and cultures with oral traditions, um, especially when they tend to be of the minority and have suffered from colonialism and all sorts of stuff, is that um, when the people who are keeping the oral tradition are unable to pass it on and then they pass away, it's lost and that's a huge aspect of the culture that's just gone and you know so i've seen some arguments for um you know kind of modernization or westernization of certain cultures kind of you know helps that or you know hastens that loss um so it's fantastic to hear that they're adapting so they can still hold on to their stories and they can still pass it on um but in, in a way that's going to be I guess sustainable because uh, I can imagine uh, the people who can teach that sort of uh, the older I guess technology of, of remembering to be able to sing the songs are becoming few and far between and so more people are going to be able to either you know write this stuff down or record it um, and at least but, but at least they're still able to hold on to it and they're still able to keep it which is just fantastic
1: yeah I hope so so I mean, yeah, there is very, very radical and rapid, I suppose, change with this sort of globalization and modernization. And certainly the elders in those villages are very concerned that their young people are not learning things in the same way. But I yeah, that there will be transformation too and hopefully new ways of engaging with those things.
0: Yeah, no, that's they, again, that's just that's it's wonderful that they're able to do that. Um, You know, because I always think of, because, like, again, going back to the Irish example, um, everything that we have from, like, the older tales comes down to us through the monks. But it's only a small fraction of the oral tradition and all Mm -hmm. the stories that would have made it, it, that it would have been made of. Um, Because the monks would have just written down what they saw as being important, And, of course, they may have written down a whole lot more. um, Mm. But we only have a small fraction of manuscripts that survive to this day. And even quite a few of those manuscripts are very, very, um, deteriorated. And so we have, yeah, we have plenty of, um, stories in both like Ireland and Wales. We have plenty of stories and poems that we have segments of it and we can tell, okay, Mm. here's like stanzas. One to ten, and then we're missing a whole chunk, and then here stands us like eighty eight to a hundred
1: yeah, and
0: yeah. you know, or we'll have four or five different versions of one story in various fragments, and so you know we're not quite sure how they fit together or which one was um, considered to be kind of the more accepted version, or were they all accepted and um, so it always just kind of it always just kind of pains me when I think about all the stories that we have lost either because the bunks decided it was too pagan to write down or mm. they did write it down and it got destroyed or lost or it's sitting in a bog somewhere um and just you know how much more we we could have it always makes me wish for time travel <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah that would be good wouldn't it? No, it wouldn't. yeah I mean, certainly, yeah, I think there will be and is a sense of loss, I suppose, in in this part of Papua New Guinea in terms of that, that 1930s period that was very much connected to um, probably aspects of uh, the mission movement and that kind mm-hmm. of thing in which a lot of those traditional structures were destroyed. They were destroyed by locals mostly, but locals undergoing you know, a massive change of, their, of yeah. their entire world and cosmology, I suppose. So there is that um, aspect where there is uh, sort of a, maybe a disjointing or, or a feeling of alienation from the fact that there's all these... Because Orocolo Bay is a very famous place ethnographically because of mm-hmm. anthropological research that took place there in the 20s and 30s by an anthropologist called Francis Edgar Williams. And it's, but it's also famous for its material culture, And so there's museums across the world, you know, you'll see masks from Orocola Bay specifically in Barcelona, London, you know, anywhere really that has a large collection and especially places with Pacific collections, Edinburgh, you know, places like that. And so they have this strange kind of, well, why are our, it's bizarre that these masks that used to be made in Orocola Bay for these ceremonies in the 1920s, 1930s, they're no longer, there's none in Oracolo Bay at all, wow. as, far as, I, as far as I know, but they are in museums worldwide. Um, and this has caused, you know, a bit of anxiety and confusion, I would say, and we had a lot of conversations while I was working there in 2015 about people asking us, well, can you track these things down? You know, can you track, specifically they wanted us to track down a a longhouse post in museums in Britain and Germany, which did not prove possible. We, mm-hmm. couldn't, um, we couldn't establish where this thing had ended up. But there, there is this kind of, there are these memories, I suppose, of these traumatic events of yeah. uh, erasure, I suppose, which, which has changed remembering uh, and the process of remembrance through time.
0: Yeah, no, that is. I'm trying to think. I've been to the museum in in London and in Edinburgh. I probably have seen one or two of these masks and not even really realized exactly what I was looking at. Um, that is kind of a a sad thing. That it is especially for kind of these um, for marginalized people or people or minorities or you know people who uh anthropologists thought were particularly interesting and decided to come in and just kind of t- yeah. t- take stuff um you know and these very very important cultural items or you know anchors for remembering are now just sitting in a glass case for a bunch of strangers just to kind of stare at with glazed over eyes um and i, can, and I am guilty of that i will say <laughs> <laughs> you know after <laughs> ten, you know six hours of walking around you get a little bit tired but you know so i can understand where some of that anxiety and that desire to have those things returned to them because that's part of their it's part of their culture you know it's like mm. if someone took um you know a family heirloom and just stuck it in a museum halfway across the globe where you can't even get to it
1: so. yeah yeah it's a, it's a complex history because a lot of those a lot of those things were made to be destroyed as well so yeah. the, the masks and things were made you know, after the ceremony they'd be destroyed. But then once that ceremony no longer is practiced, there's a question of well what what happens then? So a lot of those things have gone offshore and then there's a bit, I guess, an unease about them too um being located away from home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: no, I'm sure that's I'm sure that's difficult for them. And you know, trying to, I guess, reconcile between the generations of mm-hmm. um are you know how are we going to preserve our our cultural heritage and are we doing it in the best way? Um, you know because I can understand where some of the older generation might feel a little uneasy about the the younger generation writing things down or recording on mobile phones because it's just as wonderful as that it is it's just not the same as you know learning how to sing those songs and you know mm-hmm. remembering those songs and singing them it's just it's it's just a little bit a little bit different and mm. you know i can see how people you know the, the older generations might not be entirely too comfortable with it however however many benefits it brings that you're able to do that
1: yeah
0: yeah all right well i guess just to kind of wrap it up um we're kind of getting to the end of our time and i could i could continue asking you stuff about this for hours um so you kind of mentioned before how there's a lot of benefits to having archaeologists come in and do excavation and studies on this um what you know what exactly uh are those benefits how does this help like the people Of this area to be able to say yes this site is you know so many thousands of years Mm -hmm. old or this is where this happened or that kind of thing what does that bring them
1: yeah yeah so I suppose to be honest the main benefit I think of this research is just that it is culturally enriching I think it's enriching to uh, you know to me it's enriching to Australians and you know for Australian research to be conducted in that way because it enriches that dialogue of um, people in png working with people in australia on research which i think is just great and the process of doing that work with the community is amazing and i I hope that that has been enriching not only to me but to locals in png and that process of working out things about the past and then going back communicating those things debating what it means i think that's that's actually the best thing to be honest and then i think secondarily to that Um, Unfortunately, the world that we live in is one in which Papua New Guinea is one of the the most uh, rich places in terms of its natural uh, heritage, in terms of it has mineral resources there uh, and those uh, international companies are wanting to exploit those resources and Mm -hmm. so the Papua New Guinea National Museum has a very difficult job of trying to record important places, cultural sites around Papua New Guinea and advocate for their protection, probably on a relatively minimal budget when you compare it to uh, heritage in Ireland, heritage in Australia. So uh, I suppose that is a big part of it, is that the PNG National Museum doesn't necessarily have uh, the budget to, in any given year, go to Oricolo Bay, which is quite remote, and to do mapping with uh, local elders and establish which of those places it's really important to make sure that if if those mineral extraction companies come in and say we're we're gonna you know blow this site up well there's actually a legal structure there in place to kind of advocate protection Uh, so I suppose it's in an ideal world that wouldn't even need to be the case but I suppose it's it's that process of um, you know trying to make sure that the research is there so that um, there can be a little bit of oversight, I suppose, from um, PNG government level and develop that capacity there.
0: Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. You know, it's kind of a bit of a, a joke where um, if some place discovers oil, the United States is going to be knocking on the door <laughs> very soon. <Yeah. laughs> um, but you know, it, it's sad that that kind of thing is is necessary. But it, you know, it's it's good that there is some kind of structure in place to kind of help preserve um, some of these sites, because, you know, these big companies, when they come in and they want to extract natural resources, they don't really care about what's there Mm. other than the resource that they're getting. So it's good that, you know, this kind of work can have so many benefits to the local people. And I guess that's just, um, that's really what archaeology should be for in cases like these. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, we could go into to study some of these places and these peoples. um, They'd probably be much more open to having archaeologists come in if that's the outcome, rather than uh, if Mm -hmm. you're, you know, archaeologists are going to come in and they're going to take all of our, you know, important artifacts and just leave. (laughs) as what's yeah, happened yeah. too many times before unfortunately
1: yeah yeah and, and png in the pacific that is the process of community archaeology is just it, it has to happen you know it's, yeah. it's a, because you literally arrive and get introduced to people and they are your hosts you know mm-hmm. you're on their land and they have a total right to say get off my land what are you doing <laughs> we're so tired
0: of you go the get-go, away
1: they're saying yeah for the get-go they're saying who are you where are you from oh yeah. okay that sounds interesting let's do that and it's this very organic uh and great process of yeah. you know establishing what are the what are the priorities of the community what's the priorities of the researcher where do they intersect let's go do it
0: yeah no that's a that's a great attitude to have and that's something that i think archaeologists should always have when going into uh, to sites in places like these is you are going into somebody else's house basically, and mm,
1: yeah yeah, you know
0: definitely. you can't be a rude house guest by yeah. stomping in with mud covered boots and just kind of taking what you please yeah. from the from the cupboards. you know you have to be a good house guest,
1: <laughs> have Absolutely. to obey the rules
0: and yeah, so that's fantastic, yeah, well, thank you so much for um for chatting with chatting with me this has been very, very interesting, and with some very interesting parallels to kind of what we find here in Ireland, um, yeah, and in a place yes. that we know it very, very little about.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, no, thank you so much, Bridget. It's been great. And uh, yeah, I hope it's been vaguely interesting. Um, it's good to have things uh, to keep us all engaged at this yeah. very strange time. So.
0: Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah oh gosh no i think i think people will enjoy this because like i said it's a it's an interesting topic um with a in a place that many people may not be able to point out on a map um yeah, i yeah. myself had to go look it up <laughs> because i did <laughs> not know where it was um and i think people will will enjoy listening to it so yeah so again thank you thank you very much um
1: yeah thank you
0: yeah and if you ever happen to find yourself in ireland in a hopefully post-COVID world, uh, we'd be more than happy to host you.
1: Thank you very much. That would be awesome to travel <laughs> to Ireland in a post-COVID world. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah,
0: fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Yeah. So we'll see. You have been listening to How Travel Will Travel, a production of the National University of Ireland Galway Archaeology Society. If you get a moment, please like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and your favourite podcast supplier.